again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back as we continue in our third season and ultimately what's really our 48th episode of this podcast. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host, and I'm Executive Director of the Connecticut Certification Board. And on behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the CCB, certainly I'd like to welcome you all to this special episode of Scope of Practice. Uh, the Greek philosopher Aristotle once said, in effect, that art imitates life and gives meaning and insight into our lives. Centuries later, the great Irish playwright and wit Oscar Wilde had mused that it's more correct to say that life imitates art, meaning that what we see in the world is only part of our awareness because of art. Scholars have been debating the accuracy of each since Wilde's death in 1900. If I may be so bold to say, this is simply resolved by the dialectical nature of life, meaning that both are concurrently true. To say that art imitates life, we must look at the example of autobiographies and memoirs where the author takes their life experiences and expresses via the written word for the reader, also while gaining new insights into their own life. The novelist, however, creates a work of fiction, sometimes even based upon aspects of their own reality, which the reader has the opportunity to share in the perspective of the author while seeing it through their own lens. Hence, life imitates art. You're probably listening and wondering, well, what's his point? You know, it's not as convoluted as it may seem. The creator uses art for our purposes today, specifically mean writing, to express a part of themselves that they hold dearly, or why would they spend hours writing and rewriting and, and you know, you get the picture. And the reader is taken to new places in their imagination, often gaining insight into parts of themselves they may not be aware of. The power of the written word in our lives is immeasurable. Our guest today is here to talk about some of this. Corin Zelkis is an international best-selling author of memoirs and novels. Her debut smash spent nearly 20 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was hailed by Entertainment Weekly as one of the best accounts of addiction, let alone the college experience, or even what it means to be a teenage girl in America. Her first novel, Mother Mother, won an Alex Award for adult novels, which special appealed to teenagers. And her most recent novel, The Drama Teacher, is set to be a limited series by Gilmore Girls creator Amy Sherman Palladino. She currently lives in New York's Hudson Valley and teaches creative writing in addition to authoring her own books. We are honored to welcome her as she shares her time with us. Welcome, Corin. Glad to see you again. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, one thing that I that just came to mind um, when you talk about uh, uh, and the reviews of Smashed, mm -hmm. it it's to me the teenage girl's version of what Bukowski wrote about. Bukowski is one of my favorite authors, and he always he present presented his writing from the perspective of someone who was suffering, suffering by his own choice, however, um, and his perspective of what it's like to be an alcoholic in America. And it seems like you did the same thing, uh, but in a, from a completely different perspective. Yeah, right. With a lot more lip gloss than Bukowski. <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I've, I've heard people describe Smash before as kind of an abuse memoir more than um, a recovery memoir, which I think fits. It's about um, really the process of growing up, um, being a teenage girl um, and the insecurities. And yeah, that suffering that you described that drove me to drink at that time. Yeah. And, and you know, the adverse you know, suffering artist, it sounds like a cliche, but for many people, it's surreal. Um, as Bukowski said, how could he write about things about life if he was living a charmed life? 
Yeah, absolutely. What was it like? Um, oh, I feel like it was Dr. Drew, right? Says like it, we never enter addiction through the fun door. <laughs> like, there's always something driving us there. I mean, it's definitely not in. Um, I didn't have the courage or really even the perspective to write about it at the time, but I definitely had um, an abusive childhood too that doesn't feature in Smashed and mm. lots of alcoholism in my family, which also doesn't feature. Um, so I grew up around alcoholics who um, definitely used alcohol as a way to escape their feelings. Um, so that was a model that I took into account too and attempted to do the same thing. When we met, one of the things I heard you say in your presentation to the <laughs> audience in Utah was that even after the chaos and the trauma that you described in Smash, your recovery path was unremarkable. Uh, yeah. Nothing it was unique to you, but but really unremarkable. And what that it that stuck a tone with me because that falls outside what so many speakers that, that speak in this field uh, when would say when they talk about themselves. Was that a conscious choice on, on your part or was it just simply a bit of, hey, it is what it is? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it is what it is. I mean, I think um, the things that I always take solace in when I'm hearing other people's recovery stories is like the commonalities that feature, right? The reasons that drove us to drink, the reasons that drove us to stop drinking, um, how our relationships were impacted. So those things are kind of universal to me, I think. Um, but yeah, I definitely, and I think probably part of the reason why I don't think my recovery is um, so special is I, I didn't write Smash because I thought my drinking was very special either. I thought it was very typical because um, at that time, all those studies were coming out saying that young girls were drinking so much more than they ever had, doing a lot more underage drinking, a lot more binge drinking. Um, so I really, I didn't like the people who were the experts who were speaking on behalf of girls like me at the time. I wanted to offer something like um, a more common young person's perspective. And this may be a silly question, um, mm -hmm. but unlike so many people, uh, after recovery, you didn't choose a career in this industry. Um, I guess the silly part is, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Like when you publish a memoir, a lot of people um, want you to take on this kind of like guru persona where you're going to tell people how to live their lives and advise them how to stay sober. And that just never had much appeal to me. I mean, other people do it who are really successful at it, like Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Cheryl Strayed does a bit of that. Um, but I don't know. I, in recovery, maybe it was because I wrote Smashed a year into my recovery. I still still felt pretty fragile and I still felt like um, I was still trying to get a handle on my own life and figure out how to live. I did not feel like I was in a position to um, tell other people how to approach their sobriety. So, I mean, and really, sadly, um, there's really only ever been one thing I've... Um, felt any mastery over and that's ridiculous because you can never master writing but um I don't know that that was always what I turned to as an outlet as a coping mechanism so um I just went back to doing that um I went back and wrote another memoir and then kind of transitioned into novels um I don't know I just I didn't feel like a recovery expert ever and I know there was you know there's some self-serving aspect of that for me because I do want to make the point to people and, and you're helping me do that is that um, people in recovery go on to incredibly fruitful and successful lives outside of this industry it's something <laughs> that they love and that they choose 
And I don't think that within the field that, uh, that I work in, we talk enough about the person who's just out there living their recovery instead right. of, in, in some cases, making a living off it. And I'm a big sports fan, and I'll point out athletes that who are living lives in recovery who don't, re, they're open about it, but they don't talk about it. They go and they do their job successfully, you know, right. and, and it happens in all walks of life. And I think that our field often forgets that. Yeah, like recovery is a footnote in their story, not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people in recovery uh, are so talented in a multitude of ways um, and can really choose to do whatever they like. Um, yeah, I believe that for sure. You know, I'd like to talk about your writing for a bit, but interestingly, I, I don't want to talk about the content. I want to talk more about your perspective on the process, because to me, that's really fascinating. Um and again, it's one of those things that that I don't think are talked about as often. So, are there different perspectives in how you uh, approach writing the self-reflective memoirs versus how you write the novels? Is that a, a different artistic and creative process? Yeah, and it was something like that took me a long time to really fully understand the difference between the two and to even reflect on my different mindsets when I'm doing them. I think I, um, I was only 23 years old when I began writing smashed and I'd only ever really written poetry before that, but I'd had a, um, wonderful creative writing professor at Syracuse university, um, who also maybe your listeners probably know, cause she's written some amazing, um, amazing uh, recovery memoir and also one about growing up in an alcoholic family in Texas, um, Mary Carr. And so she had really, um, always, she'd made me fascinated in memoir and she always said the goal in memoir is to, um, know more about yourself than the reader does. So really essentially you're always striving to be the most self-aware version of yourself that you can. You really want to spell out every lesson that you have on every page, derive as much wisdom as you can. So I see memoir as like the two versions of, um, the two ingredients are you're really trying to paint a really vivid picture of what happens that transports the reader there. And then you're also trying to overlay it with like the perspective you have now that maybe you've got through um, recovery, through therapy, um, all those wonderful connections that you made. So it's a really exhausting process Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because it's exhausting to relive traumatic things for one. Um, And then two, there's just so much kind of clawing for wisdom, trying to hold yourself accountable on every page. Um, And fiction's really different because I think one, I had to learn in fiction that the reader doesn't want everything spelled out for them. They don't necessarily want your characters to be self-aware and aware of the motivations for what they're doing. The, the, um, The reader of novels really wants to just experience it and form their own connections. Um, And novel writing is interesting because when I began it, I thought I'm going to write something completely different from myself, my recovery, my problems. It's going to be a pure escape. Um, The drama teacher is a great example because I decided I was going to write this British con artist, right? She couldn't be further who I am. I'm like a really compulsively honest person in real life. Um, But then of course, I think just given our frame of reference, you're unconscious comes into play. It's kind of writing fiction is like dreaming with your eyes open. So inevitably these kind of forces from your life come in the way you think. And um, 
it's much more of an unconscious process, but it becomes deeply personal, I think, in the end. And can be when you step back, um, it can bring you to new real life, um, realizations about yourself. Um, at that, I don't know, it, but it happens a lot more naturally than in memoir when you're really setting out to find those things. So how does, does those experiences and in, in the time in between how does that add to your recollection of the events that you write about in terms of your memoirs? Oh, in terms of the memoirs, the time in between, well, with each passing year, you know, you gain more perspective on your life and you find um, just new revelations. You realize things that were motivating you in a new way. So um, my gosh, there's so much about my life now. It's almost been 20 years since I wrote Smashed. Um, that I didn't know when I wrote it. You know, I didn't know I had PTSD when I wrote it. I didn't know that I was prone to dissociating when I wrote it. I didn't know I was primarily using alcohol to dissociate and kind of um, replicate and relive some of the traumas that I hadn't come to terms with as a kid. Um, things like that. I mean, and each each year I come to even new realizations. So from the outside, it looks like it may be a cathartic process, but there's a heck of a lot more that goes into it as that you don't even realize until you have the gift of time. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think part of I always tell people who are considering write a memoir to write it as if no one's ever going to read it. Like definitely don't write it as if anyone in your family's going to read it or even your editor. <laughs> Get it down and then deal with it after the fact. Um, because then again, it, it's a really serious thing to write memoir. You have to be strong enough. Um, especially I think for people in recovery who are writing them to know that, uh, people react very strongly to memoirs, positive and negative. And it's different than receiving critique on a novel because it's your real life and you're a real character. Uh, it, you know, and it can be incredibly painful and, uh, reignite past traumas so that, right. You know, for me, because I um, wrote uh, about some uh, date rape um, in Smashed and under the, when I was under the influence um, and I wasn't quite prepared for this was like way back even before Me Too. It seems so long ago. I wasn't prepared for um, the number of women who were gonna, going to relate to that women who'd been through things themselves and their reaction, which was really lovely, was that they wanted to reach out. And thank me for being brave and also tell me their stories. Um, uh, let me know. I wasn't alone. Um, these incidents had happened to them too. Um, but it was really re-traumatizing because I wasn't at a place in my recovery um, or in my therapy where I was strong enough to hear all that. So it was basically like kind of opening my inbox every day and reading about someone else's sexual assault. Um, and that was that was really tough. I wasn't really prepared for that at the time. As you go through this kind of introspective process, um, which at times is is entertaining and at times is very difficult, um, uh, does that change you in the moment and potentially in the future as you, as you go through that process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, writing something is like the first step to saying it out loud, right? Like, which is why even if we're not talking about publishing, if we're talking about journalism, journaling, even if we're talking about writing fiction, um, writing about an incident that seems really shameful, and we all know addiction is a shame-based disease, is the first step to getting it out so then you can take it, talk about it, 
with a trusted friend, with a therapist, um, and shed some light on it because sunlight's the best dis- disinfectant, right? Yeah, and and I, I agree. And I think that's that's fascinating. And I take it back to some conversations um, that I had with Christopher Lawford uh, of the Kennedy family a, a few years ago before he passed, talking about he wrote several memoirs and the insight that he gained years after. He's like, oh, that's what I was talking about. But I didn't know what I was talking about. There was an unconscious piece. And all of a sudden he saw it in the world, um, yeah. which also leads me to this point is the art of writing a memoir lost with the way people live their lives on social media. Lawford had a very public life. Yeah. Um, but we got insight into that. But every moment of his life wasn't published. And we see that today. That's so true. I mean, uh, daily on Twitter, everything, and Instagram down to <laughs> letting everyone know what you ate for breakfast or brunch. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is possible. It it. it it would be good, I think, especially for those who have ambitions of writing a memoir in particular, to think about um, where you're putting your energy and where you're telling your story, not to um, like fritter it away in little one-offs, but to, because um, it does take any book, just so much deep meditation and so much commitment. It really is like a marriage um, in a way. It was I feel like it was Erica Chong who said like writing a novel is a marriage, a short story is um just a short relationship and a poems and affair or something like that. But, <laughs> but it takes a lot of, a lot of commitment. So, and, and it takes a lot of energy. So I think those who are interested in writing um, a memoir, especially addiction, a recovery memoir, a memoir about trauma, it takes a, an insane amount of psychological energy. So I would probably step away from social media during those times. You know, as, as the reader, in my perspective on that is social media, kind of takes away from the recollection of the individual because we don't always remember things as they are, which is, and if we did, life would be boring. Yes. I like reading somebody's perspective and what they, how they remember it. Yeah. That's much more important. That's based on a person and not an event, right? That's the internal stuff that they're expressing. I don't need to know that you're, you know, see that your eggs were cooked um, over easy when you're telling me that you were at a restaurant and you had, you're angry because you wanted them over easy, but they weren't done that way. But they, you know, because how you perceive the moment is much more fascinating and, and, and much more telling about the person that gets you in touch with that. Um, yeah, I agree. Well, and Mary Carr always said, um, I mean, Mary Carr holds herself to an insane standard of objective truth. Like I've heard her talk about, you know, memories she's had when she was a kid that she wants to write about, but she has interrogated them a lot and she can't be quite certain they're true and everyone's dead and she can't ask anyone and she still wouldn't write them. Like a lot of people wouldn't hold themselves to that highest standard, but I have heard her say too, um, you're not trying to write like the truth. You're trying to write your truth as objectively as you can. You don't have license to make things up. You don't want to do a James Fry situation. Um, but yeah, in the end, people want to know your truth, what was true to you, um, and to go as deep as you can into that. And I think that that gets attacked a lot because you'll re- people will write and it will describe responses, internal response things and how they remember certain events. And the p- other people involved in those events have different recollections of it. And will attack it as if theirs is right when um, it's right for each person. There, there isn't a single right. It's it's how they perceive it. 
That's right. It affects us. Um, and really, the moment you give your attention to writing about one thing instead of something else, you've already kind of skewed reality a little bit, right? You know, and writing fiction involves, you know, you're creating characters and plot lines that have to come directly from your imagination, um, but are often reflections of, of true life individuals. For example, one of my favorites of, of all time was Treasure Island. I loved Treasure Island when I was a kid. That and Robinson Crusoe were like the first two books that I remember reading. And, and Robert Louis Stevenson developed Long John Silver in the image of one of his colleagues, a guy named G.A. Henley, who wrote the fantastic poem Invictus. So he saw that man in his mind and, and he became Long John Silver. Um, are characters in your novels reflective of people in your life? Um, I think I've definitely had, I don't know, I try to actively avoid it, I think, mostly because I'd like to have friends at the end of the day. Um, I think inevitably sometimes um, it happens unconsciously. There have even been moments like um, in my novel, Mother, Mother, which is about a dysfunctional family, um, kind of has a borderline mom at the helm of it. There's a her youngest son in it um, faints when he gets scared um, or, and I wrote and published that book before I realized that was just completely about myself. Cause that's, a, that was what I did when I was a kid too. It was kind of like dissociation to the max. Like when I was, my system was completely overloaded, I would just faint. Um, but I mean, I wrote that entire book for years without really making that connection. Well, so yeah, said, it's unconscious. Yeah, definitely. And I think the brilliance in so clearly and, and so dramatically describing someone's a character's response to a situation has to come from somewhere. It, maybe it comes from research, but I think that initial uh, a brainstorm comes from us and we may not know it. Yeah, absolutely. We're drawing on our own frame of references, which are really particular to us. And, and I think it's the same in music. In certain, you know, in other art forms, you can you can hear the pain in in someone's music, even if it's not lyrical. Um, you see it in 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 visual art. You see it in sculpture and paint. So I think that unconscious. If we try to make the unconscious conscious while we're creating some form of art, whichever we choose, we lose something, the effect of it is lost. Yeah, I feel sense? like I, when I wrote my memoir, my follow-up memoir, Fury, I was trying really hard to make as many conscious connections as I could. And I really wanted to come to terms with my dysfunctional family and like accept and love them and hold myself accountable. But it really, it's just like, I don't want to I say it's the most unsuccessful of my books, but it's just, I, I didn't arrive at it in that natural, dreamy, unconscious way that you have when you're writing fiction. And you answered one of my questions when I said that, you know, I was thinking, does that kind of reflection, when you look back, should offer insight into people in your life or yourself? And clearly it does. And again, I think that's the power of it. And for the reader as well, finding insight into ourselves through the characters. I, I, the, the first book I ever read, I think, cover to cover was Robinson Crusoe. And I yeah. was him. I had never read the novel before, um, 12 or 13, but I was him. I could see myself in, in his role and pick up traits of him. Um, and I know I we had said in conversation, and I see it in a movie when I watch the Brothers McMullen, I look at Edward Burns' character and I said, that bastard. 
He yeah. stole everything about me to write this character. Um, so we all find ourselves in it for the, whether we're creating or enjoying it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, um, uh, you know, my part of my recovery journey has been, um, I found myself married to an alcoholic and an addict. And um, I really was stubborn in wanting to make this situation work. I had three children with him. I supported the whole family on my own. Um, uh, he didn't work. I, it was a bad situation. And I really had a lot of ambivalence. I didn't want to acknowledge that. I didn't want to have to change my mm -hmm. life. Um, and I, as I writing this book, the drama teacher about this British con artist, um, she finds herself in a similar situation and it's kind of like her childhood traumas complicate it, which definitely reflected my fears that my traumatic upbringing was going to come into some kind of custody proceeding and I'd be deemed unfit because of what I'd been through or things like that. Um, so really, I, even though I didn't realize it at the time, uh, that character was me in a lot of ways. Um, and that was the place where I wrestled with the things that kept me, uh, the internal forces, the fears I had that kept me stuck in that marriage. And it also helped me work through them and imagine a life for myself as a, a single person. There's a, a, a Toronto area psychologist uh, and author, a guy named Dr. Keith Oatley, he wrote an article for Psychology Today many years ago, 10, 11 years ago, which he talked to, uh, talked about what he called the psychology of fiction. Mm. And what he was saying is his, he mused that these characters seem real, uh, but they're of the mind. And I think what he meant is that for the reader, reader is using their combined intellectual and emotional parts of their brain to create a version of that character. Right. Is this something that you as an author think about during your writing process, how that character is going to be perceived wholly by the reader. Yeah, I've been trying to. It was like, like I said, it was a steep learning curve to go from memoir to fiction. Um, but that was one of the things that really struck out is so different is that um, instead of the Mary Carr version of memoir writing, where you never want to let the reader know anything you don't, in, in novel novel writing, which is perfect for like a recovering codependent like myself too. It's like, you've got to just hand over the reins a little bit, let the reader do a little bit more work, know that the reader is going to be more actively involved in the process of making meaning about what's going on, how, why the characters are acting the way that they do. You don't have to spell it out for them. Um, so fiction writing definitely helps some codependent recovery in that sense as well. And I think that if you were if you were consciously thinking, well, this character is a reflection of this part of me, mm -hmm. it, you you are trying to oversell the character to some to the readers in, in terms of letting them form their own opinions, right? Um, because you're trying to put, well, I want to be viewed positively when unconsciously you may be using part of yourself and not consciously thinking, but you understand the process of, okay, I need to leave room for this individual who's reading right. to develop their own impression of the person. Exactly. Uh, and almost your job as a, as a fiction writer as well is to create as much of a complex character as you can, because they're, Believe the believability comes from someone being complex, multidimensional. They've got good parts of themselves. They've got bad parts of themselves. You know, I, I know that when I read fiction, one of my favorite, the characters that I look at and I, I'm uh, most intrigued by are the antiheroes because they <laughs> seem the most real to me. 
Um, there's because there's good and bad sides with them. Yeah, they do good things, but there's the negative aspects of them that that overshadow it. And I think Walter White uh, uh, was definitely you know the anti, great antihero. I think those characters are because they let us explore dark sides of ourselves as well as a reader. Yeah, and for a writer expressing that dark side that we all have. Yeah, definitely. And I think the the heroine and the drama teacher is definitely an anti-hero. She kind of cons people out of their hard-earned money. Um, she's very smart in the way she goes about it. She's got a kind of sympathetic past in that her father um, kind of stole her and changed her identity. So she doesn't really have a psychological home of this identity to go back to. So we can kind of understand the way she is the way she is, but she has some some bad habits, um, some coping mechanisms that she's definitely outgrown that she needs to um, confront to move on with her life. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you've gotten a lot of feedback from readers that identify with the characters. Do you get feedback of somebody identifying with a character that you didn't really, this may not be a main character, there's just something about that. It's like, oh, I really related to ABC. Yeah, what a great question. I mean, I think... Um, it's always fascinating, like, um, uh, there is Gracie, the main character, and the drama teacher. Uh, women have really responded to, which makes me feel a little bit better, because I've, I've fallen for some con artists in my day. Like, this is not a good, this is not a good guy. Um, he definitely is, when he first meets the main character, he's trying to steal from her. Um, but there's something just, he's got that charm, that charisma. Um, that when women read him, they're like, they know he's a bad guy and that he's bad for the main character and they shouldn't like him, but yet still there's something appealing there. Um, I've definitely heard from people have really related to um, Violet, which I had hoped for the um, one of the main characters and Mother Mother, who's really the black sheep in a kind of narcissistic family and experiments with drugs as a um, way to escape that and ultimately really finds her people and finds um, a healthier way of living in terms of really getting into farming and agriculture and being outside the sun on her face and her hands in the soil. Um, but yeah, I don't, if I've been too surprised by anyone, I think maybe the most surprising one for me was people really um, related and were very deeply concerned about my childhood friend, Natalie, who um, was the person who introduced me to drinking and smashed um, and in my real life when I was 14 years old. Um, yeah, people found her a very complex um, and really relatable character and always wanted to make sure it was okay for her. You know, it's funny because you just got me thinking about the first time I smoked pot back in the early 80s was with a guy who uh, I don't, is incredibly successful in the uh, aerospace industry. So oh, wow. it was a different thing. It was, it was just kind of two kids, you know, thing, but it, uh, it it became different for me at the time. Yeah. So um, I'm glad that you talked about the woman going into farming and agriculture, because otherwise I was going to have to sue you for copyright for describing <laughs> my family. Oh. <laughs> a narcissistic group. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, obviously writing is a large part of your own recovery pathway, but you and I have spoken about, uh, you know, previously about the power of creativity that you have shared with others. 
I, I think that that's really strong and powerful. Can you talk a bit about that and the healing power of, of self-expression? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, kind of one of my, I've taught creative writing to a number of different types of people over the years. Like I had a, um, community of just moms who were writing memoir in my small town in the Hudson Valley years ago. We had a little memoir workshop um, that we would do every week. Um, one of my favorite uh, teaching experiences, though, was um, at a homeless shelter for teenagers in Poughkeepsie, where it was mostly um, kids who've run away a lot of the time from alcoholic and abusive and drug-addicted caregivers. Um, and oh, it's just a tough spot to be in. Like they can only really be there legally two weeks um, without the permission of their parents. Um, then it's kind of a question of whether mom and dad are going to show up demanding they come home, whether CPS is going to be involved and things are going to get even hairier from there. So their kid's really in the midst of a, a serious trauma. And um, I found actually uh, fiction writing, found poetry exercises, were their favorite um, because really they wanted an escape from their experience. Um, so they wanted to live in that imaginary world, um, but they also inevitably, um, just given they were in such an emotional situation, uh, these imagined scenarios would really turn into ways for them to express themselves and what they were going through. So I would do things sometimes like just give them, I'd have a bunch of old vintage photographs past everyone would pick one and just like write a character sketch of um, who they think the person in the photograph was. And I mean, that was kind of a lot of the time became a way of people to describe um their abusive caregivers. I'd say, oh, this woman's definitely someone, she's an alcoholic herself, her husband is, um, he abuses her, she's called um, the police a bunch of times, but they don't do anything. Things that would then start to feel really um, pretty intimate and like they were coming from a real place. Um, we did, one of my favorite ones ever is uh, I gave the kids just the tiniest little writing prompts, um, give instructions for living on a cloud. And this girl said, don't look down, don't fall off and don't be scared, which still gives me chills because it seems just like to perfectly describe her instructions for um, how to live um, in this place without any permanent housing and no real clear picture of what the future looks like. Um, so, I mean, one of my other favorite found, um, exercises to do is found poetry. And I've done it with kids like as young as second grade. And it just like, we'll go through other people's poems and lines from novels and just cut out one sentence at a time and fill a huge shoebox with them till it looks like a box full of fortune cookies or something. And then we just sit down at a table and I ask the kids to just, um, make a poem, do the best they can, um, pull out what appeals to them and try to make it make sense. Um, and incredible things come up. I did that in a middle school once and the school counselor came up to me afterwards and she said, like, I don't know how you did it, Corin, but um, this girl's family, they recently lost her baby brother. The parents won't even talk about it. She won't talk about it with anyone, but that poem she just wrote was clearly like a grief poem about losing her brother. Um, and again, like, I don't know how conscious it was at the time for her. She was just pulling out, like reading sentences and pulling out um, what appealed to her. So um, yeah, it's a wonderful way of kind of writing about traumatic events without going, confronting them head on through the front door. And I think that when we talk about healing, we assume that it's conscious. Right. But so much of it, it's like an iceberg. Yeah. Is, is below the surface that is not that easy to get to, not that easy to access. 
consciously. We have to, to, to step away. It's, yeah. it's funny because I'm doing a presentation in a couple of weeks in, in North Carolina, and I'm talking about grief and, and are we allowing people to grieve the loss mm-hmm. of their substance enough? And one of the things that treatment centers often do is have somebody write a goodbye letter to yeah. whatever the lifestyle, behavior, substance, whatever it is. And they don't do much with it other than one session. And not my goal when I talk about this is to say, this is telling you everything that you need to accomplish in treatment because the, the client in their own words is saying what the what the problems and goals are. Right. So it makes your work easy if you pay attention to that, that that should that could drive the treatment for that individual. But we don't look at it as that. We think it's a one-time event. We're just going to put it away. That's fascinating. I love that. Because if you're writing like a goodbye letter to a glass of wine at the end of the day, like, I'll miss you. You help me relax. And um, a counselor can look at it and say, okay, so we've got to help you find some strategies for relaxing. Like, yeah, um, yeah I would think that's really or valuable. ask a question and say, so tell me about this need to relax at the end of the day. What does that mean? Are there ways to get so that they can gain their own insight? I think the use of uh, of of somebody's internal creativity tapping into that unconscious um, is just so powerful. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, I mean, like writing was my therapist before I ever found a therapist. So I think for sure, um, I I think writing is a great tool for anyone recovering from anything. Um, and I kind of, I, I know from my friends who've been um, in rehab that journaling is a big part of it, but I'd kind of encourage everyone in the addiction community too to look at the um, the power of fiction writing to help people um, confront some things that they're maybe not consciously able to get at just yet. Which, I mean, I have a friend who teaches um, creative writing and she tries to teach memoir writing in prison actually, and she's encountered a similar thing. You can't just sit down and ask someone to write about why they're in there, right? But um, she's found kind of going at it a roundabout way, asking women in prison um, to write about the last time they remember wearing a dress or like a favorite childhood scent. Um, it it just, it makes it a little less scary. You're able to go about it um, from a different angle and you get there eventually. It's slower, but we need that. Um. 10, 15 years ago, I lived in the eastern part of the state, and I'd get up and go to the gym every morning around 5 o'clock and ride the bike next to Wally Lamb. Wally Lamb was known here for going into, uh, you know, going into the Connecticut women's prisons and doing writing exercises. And he was just a fascinating guy. He just happened, we happened to live in the same area. Um, and I look forward to that because every now and then he would share an insight or two. Um, uh, but his work with incarcerated women was freeing for them right yeah out of that situation and we know the stats about incarcerated women with trauma uh, victims of violence etc so that it really fit perfectly with what they were doing and it's just so powerful and it's just was just generally a nice guy we just ride the bike and chat in the morning um, in a a pretty empty gym yeah you once said in an interview, and I won't say long ago because that's not fair. I don't want to age you. <laughs> sometime you said in an interview that fiction writing is about escapism, whereas mem- uh, memoir writing is about facing cold, harsh realities. Mm. Yeah, that was probably before I wrote fiction. It was 2009. <laughs> oh, so I had been maybe working on... Mother, mother, I'm not sure, but 
Yeah, I would definitely amend that and say <laughs> fiction has helped me um, confront some cold, hard realities. I just didn't know I was doing it at the time. So quickly, how do each, whether it's memoir writing or fiction, uh, help with the process of self-discovery? Mm, that's fantastic. Um, well, I think probably... Um, okay, I got it. I got it. All right. So I think fiction writing helps bring to light our unconscious issues that we're struggling with, right? Yeah. So then maybe that's the way we initially access them and slowly let them seep into our consciousness as we find can parallels between us and the characters we're writing about, right? Mm -hmm. And I think probably memoir is the way that we go about integrating that understanding because you then are just you're taking um the issues that you've struggled with um how they've informed the way you've lived your life and you're saying um you're taking accountability for them and you're integrating them into your history that's that's fantastic uh, I, i'm i'm glad i was able to ask that because i saw the light bulb go on in your head over your head and and i see the smile on your face that uh you know, it, it brought something up in you. Absolutely. Thank Before you. we finish up, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I just want to thank everyone for doing the work that they're doing. Um, you know, there's hardly a person out there who hasn't been um, touched by addiction. Um, and how grateful I am and to keep up the good work. And, and to be honest, uh, uh, I'm glad to call you my friend now, but I also see us having to do a workshop or two together. <laughs> I would love that. But yeah. We're not far apart, right? We're, we're a couple hours away. Oh, we're really close. I'm practically on the Connecticut border where I am. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I, I look forward to that in the future. Me uh, too. I'd like to thank Corin for taking the time to chat with us. I'm so appreciative of your time. Thank you for, for spending some time with us and, and to chat with us and for sharing your perspective. And, and really what I wanted to accomplish was kind of planting the seed of what creativity can be kind of in our collective mind um and that yeah. it's it's something that we need to focus on um and not forget that let people reach their own individuality and express it so thank you uh thank you so much jeff we welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor you're going to be sad that you didn't sponsor this one but because people are going to love it i know <laughs> and I can be reached at info at ctcertboard.org for more information. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board really appreciate everyone who listens. Thank you. It's humbling when I get emails about uh, about uh, uh, the podcast. Um, please don't forget to follow us on either Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. And we'll catch you next time, everybody, 